welcome to the Over a Bat Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann, and with me today is a very special guest. He is the author of the book Thinking Basketball, a contributor at Nylon Calculus, and does some wonderful work at his own website, backpicks.com. Ben Taylor, welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And uh, we asked you to join us for a special series that we're kind of kicking off where we bring in NBA writers and other podcasters to share something memorable that helped shape your NBA fandom. And, you know, we you didn't really have one thing that stood out. So we sort of you know narrowed down your choice based on a series of options and ended up with a game that we had been wanting to talk to about for quite a while. It is the double overtime classic from March of 1992. The Celtics beating the Blazers 152 to 148, a game that was on national television and NBC back when that that was a big deal. Spoilers. Yeah, I am spoiling here. That's something that we uh, do on occasion on this uh, on the show. And, um, you know, for you, you know, what what made this game stand out? What what made this game special for you? We didn't have one game. We were emailing back and forth. I, I could have gone about. 7,000 words deep on a Fab Five tournament game or something like that. But yeah, we, we, got, we got to this Portland-Boston game, which I think was like this seminal, it's the double buzzer beater. I think that's what it is. Um, at that age and just growing up and still playing a lot of sports, there was something about the buzzer beater itself that was extremely captivating to me. And I only think I realized that after that game where there were not one, but two. Um, Larry Bird hit one at the end of overtime. And then Kevin Gamble hit another one, uh, or it's ascended overtime, and then Gamble hit one to send it to double overtime. So, uh, and come on, there were 300 points scored in the game. Yes, and I uh, I actually looked this up. There are only 20 games in Basketball References database where uh, both teams scored more than 148 points in a game, and only three games have occurred after this one. So that's a, uh, a, a fairly noteworthy occurrence in NBA history. I'm not sure if Basketball References database is complete in this uh, regard, but still, that's a you know uh, that that would be a, a large majority of them for sure. Yeah, no, it's it was a rarity. It, it was a treat. Absolutely, and yeah, the, the to kind of set the scene here a little bit. The Blazers at the time, 46 and 18. Coming into the game, you know, they had been to the finals in 1990, 91. They were still a stout team, but they were upset by the Lakers, another stout team in the playoffs that year. Uh, I guess it was an upset. Either way, it was uh, they were they were among the lead teams here. 92, again, at that point, they had the second uh, best record in the NBA at the time. They ended the season second in the league in, in SRS uh, behind the Bulls. So, you know, they were uh, the, I, obviously the Bulls were on another plane, but the Blazers were uh, there. There was certainly not, you know, not unbelievable to think that they could, you know, compete and maybe beat them in the uh, finals. Uh, they were led, of course, by Clyde Drexler, you know, one of the greats of the time, kind of, uh, you know, under uh, heralded in, in my mind sometimes. Uh, Terry Porter and Jerome Kersey, also uh, excellent players. Also notable there, you got Buck Williams, Kevin Duckworth, uh, Danny Ainge, of course, facing off against his old team. Cliff Robertson. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, it, I, I think I put them in the order in which they were listed in the box score, perhaps. So uh, so I guess that's why he was uh, there. But uh, Mark Bryant and uh, young Robert Pack. Uh, Cliff Robertson also once dragged us on Twitter. So, uh, you know, we, we put him down on the list for uh, for that reason. Um, He's well known for dragging. I think Uncle Spliffy is his new yes, handle. It is. Uh, I'm not sure if people know that that side of his business life now. But yeah, he's, he's into the uh, he's in the marijuana sales. But say, hey, hurrah for him. 
yeah, we we yeah yes we we enjoy Cliff Robinson despite dragging us on Twitter. We you know we uh, <laughs> we're okay with it. You know it, it happens. These are these are things. Um, yes, I and uh, we're getting and, sidetracked. And, Right, we're getting, we, it's yeah. going to happen here on the podcast. It's just something that happens here. Uh, Mark Bryant, Young Art Pack. Hey, what do you kind of remember about the, you know, the, the Blazers from this time? I, I, I think of them as a little bit among the more unheralded teams in um, NBA history. You know, they, they accomplished a lot. Obviously, they fell to, you know, a great Bad Boys team in 90 and fell to a great Bulls team coming in 1992. Spoiler alert again. Um, you know, what stands out to you about them? Well, I think you're right. I think there are uh, a collection of teams, um, especially probably since the 70s, you know, the last four decades and change that have had these little spurts, three, four, five year runs, and they don't win a title. And then they kind of just, they fade to a certain degree. Um, You know, history becomes very polarizing and it's like the haves and the have nots. Um, But they were a really good team. They they started to get really good at the end of the 80s. Very, very athletic. They also gave me like, we should bring this up. I, I grew up in Boston, but I loved a lot of different teams. Portland was like my team in the early 90s. So I had rooting confusion that day <laughs> where it's like it's like you're you're kind of rooting for the Celtics because you live in the city and the people, you know, my dad is a big Celtics fan and we're watching the game together. But you also want Portland to do really well. Um, yeah, it's it's like make sure you do well, but don't win kind of thing. Uh, anyway, they were... Yeah. Very athletic, very exciting, uh, and and I had an irrational like basketball crush on Terry Porter. I don't know why. Yeah, well, he was a fun guy to watch. I mean, it's it's understandable that uh, it's understandable that you would have that that crush. That's uh, he, he was entertaining. I mean, Drexler particularly to me. I mean, in addition to being a great player, just was aesthetically pleasing to watch. I mean, just the incredible dunker, just, you know, flew all over the court, was, you know, could just get to the basket with a head of steam and, you know, do nifty moves around the rim. Um, and, and he's, I think, maybe the number one guy who, like, the shadow of Jordan, like, casts it maybe the most greatly over Drexler because, you know, to a certain degree, they're such similar players and they played, you know, obviously roughly during the same career. And obviously he doesn't measure up to Jordan, but, you know, he's one of the probably, you know, top 30-ish players of all time and just... um you know, be, because of because of you know playing exactly at the same time as Jordan, you know, gets a little bit uh, sidetracked. Probably playing in Portland most of his career didn't help either. You know, they obviously Portland doesn't get the attention that some of the markets get. If he played in Boston for you know his career, for example, probably you know that would give him a little bit of a boost there in remembrance. And a perfect nickname uh, to yes. capture that aesthetic. The you know the the glide. It would kind of to put it in modern terms for for people less familiar with his game. It would be like if James Harden were like the flop or something. <laughs> uh, no, I kid. James Harden's great. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I, yeah, the whole team was great. I think Drexler was, to, to your last point, I think he was unfairly put in Jordan's shadow. Uh, almost like a real-life straw man. Like, just give give Michael an adversary that he could knock down. Um, and I think a lot of that was you know, manufactured in some way. Uh, I don't think Drexler wanted that, nor was it his personality, nor what, nor was it even his style. Right as a player, they 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 had fairly different styles, even though they played the same position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, Celtics uh, still with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish um, as uh, their most notable players. Well, I, you know, along with uh, 
Reggie Lewis, who had emerged as a, a, a star at this point and, um, you know, was probably the best player on, on this team. Although, you know, Bird, when he was healthy, was still very effective. You know, Mikhail was, was still was still pretty good, but those guys were in their, you know, mid to late 30s at this point. Uh, Bird and Mikhail nearing the end of their careers. Parrish would still uh, hang on for a few more years, despite being the oldest of the three. Uh, at this point, they were uh, at this point in the season they were tied for tenth in the league in record. They ended the season eighth in SRS, so still a you know pretty good to very good team, but obviously not really a championship contender unless you you know squint very hard. Uh, other guys who were on the team were notable: uh, Kevin Gamble, uh, D. Brown, uh, John Bagley, uh, Ed Pinkney, and a very young Rick Fox who uh, does play a key role in a couple positions in this game. You know what's interesting? Bird was in and out of the lineup with his back that year, and they were actually far better with him in it wasn't like they were uh, sort of a fledgling team when he played I think his passing his spacing his shooting um, he still had that even though he kind of tippy-toed around the court at that point in time um, and he seemingly unlocked something in that team that made them more viable like when you sent me the record at that point I was actually kind of surprised that they were so far behind a team like Portland in when was that game February at March yeah yeah um, so they were they were better than you would think when they had uh, all hands on deck, which wasn't too often in the regular season. And then potentially uh, another spoiler, an Achilles heel in the playoffs um, as they kind of fizzled out in the same way. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, yeah, as the season went on, the in the playoffs, I, I he did not play effectively part of that only played four of the seven games in the uh in the playoffs and uh yeah that was uh basically the end of his career obviously except for the nice 92 uh, dream team that he um obviously was a, a better note to go out, out on than uh than those playoffs were but this is you know really probably the uh last well almost certainly it's the last great you know all-time classic game from larry bird uh, 49 points on 62 true shooting, uh, 14 rebounds, 12 assists, 4 steals in 54 uh, minutes, which is actually a career high in minutes, <laughs> amazingly enough, at 35 years old. Um, <laughs> can we run Can we run that back? Because I've known that stat line for a long time. But sure. this is 35-year-old Larry Bird on his last legs in 1992 against the best team in the West. He, it was 49 points, 14 boards, 12 assists? Yes. Yeah. It's not too shabby. No, Four it's steals. too bad. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And um yeah, it was just really a you know, far and away's most points scored that year. Um he had thirty two against Orlando early on that year. Uh, you know, it's the seventh best uh game score in basketball references game score of his career, which may not include all of his pre eighty three games. It includes at least some of them, but maybe not all of them, but still, you know, up there in the greatest games of his career according to that metric. And according to, you know, the just watching it and, and seeing how he produced, it's it's certainly up there. Um, and, and yeah, it's just uh, a remarkable performance, uh, obviously, for a lot of reasons. It's an important game for them. They were on a losing streak. You know, they're battling for division lead and for, you know, a, a stronger playoff spot. Uh, you know, obviously, they're pretty far away from the, you know, the Bulls at this point. But they're still, you know, I'm sure they're they're harboring ambitions of making one last run with, you know, all these uh, all these old guys. So uh, a great performance, uh, you know, a, an all time performance, really, from Bird the last time he had the opportunity to do that. But as, as far as the Celtics go, um, obviously, you were a fan of theirs uh, being in Boston. You know, what what stands out to you about this team, you know, kind of at at this stage of, um, you know, uh, of the Bird McHale uh, Parish Celtics? Well, they felt old. And in your recap just now, I was thinking of 
how old they actually were. Uh, it, you know, it was sort of like you have this peak period in the 80s and then they didn't think of the Spurs, right? The Spurs have, at least before they lost Kawhi, they, they had recharged to some degree. They've turned players over and they've brought in fresh blood. And I think that was just always missing. Uh, Len Bias died, of course. Reggie Lewis, I think, was the promise for that. Um, and, and, you know, obviously we know what happened to him. So it, it was like, it, it was hard. It wasn't like a team where you're like, oh, I'm, we're, we're super psyched because they have this incredible, you know, Lakers 2017 collection of young players or anything like that. It was a weird mix of like very old guys and a couple candidates to Rick Fox, you know, people were very excited about when he came in, um, which is kind of strange in retrospect, but yeah, it was, it was a strange, it was a strange team. It was, I guess, the classic, like, 50-win team. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there were guys, like, Ed Pickney was a guy who was, you had a lot of promise coming out of college and was a bit of a disappointment in the NBA. D. Brown was, you know, uh, obviously got stardom from the uh, dunk contest. And, you know, there there was some hope that you know, he could emerge as, a, you know, a, a solid star for them and, you know, was never really that effective for them. Yeah, they just didn't have... Yeah, I mean, their success, you know, kind of caught up to them to a certain point because they weren't really able to replenish that much. Obviously, you know, Len Bias passing away was a huge blow because he would have, you know, been a uh, very likely been an elite player that could have, you know, helped uh, sustain them for as a contender for longer. Um, and obviously, Bird's injuries, you know, I mean, he was it's, it's amazing how effective he was given the pain that he was dealing with. And, you know, it, that he lasted as long as he did, you know, given all of that. But, um, you know, those obviously um, added up. Um yeah, I, I I think you know one interesting thing, uh, and I think it's shown to a degree in this uh, game is that the you know the Celtics you know were still a you know fast breaking team. A lot of you know what they were doing was based on the fast break. They they were a running team. They were not uh, you know a, a afraid to push the pace. And this game you know has a lot of pushing the pace from um, from both teams. I. I I remember from um, Unfinished Business, the Jack McCallum book about the 91 team. So yeah, obviously similar to this era and, you know, Bird talking about you know, there was a emphasis again put on you know them reestablishing the running game, even though they were an old team. It felt like the mentality that he had was that lazy teams don't run and, um, you know, teams that are working hard do run, which I, I you know, kind of um, – basketball went away from that mindset I think for a long time where you know, if you're a fast breaking team you're not playing defense if you're a running team you're not playing defense you're you know that, that the game kind of got slowed down and bogged down and obviously that's kind of turned around in, in the recent years with how the Warriors play and you know the, the pace going up over the last you know five six years or so um, it's just kind of interesting how those ideas kind of cycle and how the styles kind of you know cycle well if you could recapture the way that the 60s Celtics played you would recapture their success. And a lot of that was based on this idea of you're running and distributing the ball in offense and you're getting out in transition. And, you know, the thing my dad used to say constantly was they had six guys in double figures. They had six guys in double figures. Like it was, it was almost fetishized, like get as many guys in doubles, double figures as you can. Uh, so I think the, the great segue and the lesson is that no one really knew for a very long time that the 60s Celtics weren't particularly efficient on offense. Sure. Uh, which is not to say, of course, that transition and running isn't effective at times, but it was just that basic for a long time. And the coaching tree that was there 
was often disciples of like the old, you know, the old guys and Tommy Heinsohn coached the team in the seventies and then moved about seven feet from the coach's box to the broadcast booth and right. yelled the same tropes uh, <laughs> still to this day yeah. over and over. I really wanted to pick a, a game to look back on where Tommy Heinsohn cursed someone out on TV, but uh, <laughs> we can use our imaginations. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I, I think that's where that came from a lot. And look, we, I can't hold it in. We got to get to the end of this game. The end of this game is, I think, okay. really what what made it um, tantalizing for me and kind of one of these seminal moments. That here's what I remember, and I think you just rewatched this, so you can check my memory. The Celtics were down in such a way at the end of the game that it looked like it was over. They were down by like five with thirty fifteen seconds left or something like that. I I, I turned the game off. I left in a stew. In a, in, a, in a competitive fit of childhoodness, I, I ran down the hallway or something and I said, that game is over. I don't need to watch this. Is that right? There was a, the, the end of the game was, it looked like it was put away? Yes. And in fact, Portland was up uh, five with 12 seconds left. Um, yeah. and, and they talk about later on, uh, um, Marv Albert and uh, Mike Fatella talk about how actually the crowd began to empty uh, in the fourth quarter, but then they returned <laughs> once we're, the Celtics t- tied it happened. You know, they returned during the overtime, which is, of course, great, you know, a capsule of the times that you could you know do that back then. But um, yes, so Bird is able to um, basically somehow, you know, kind of outquicks everyone, you know, is able to to get a quick layup. Um, and then uh, and then Kersey is fouled, uh, misses two free throw and commits a lane violation to give um, Boston the ball back. Right. With a couple seconds left, if I recall correctly. Yes. Yeah. And then so that's when my dad called me. He called me back on Kersey's second free throw. So I run back in the room and how much time was, was there, how much time was on the clock when they had that dead ball? Uh, Around three to four seconds. I don't have the note here exactly, but something in that, yeah, ballpark. Yeah. And then they, they throw it into Bird who hits this like quote unquote three pointer (laughs) where I always felt it was a very old school referee situation where he was kind of maybe fouled and they could have given him an and one on a long two, but they just called it a three and I'm, pretty sure his right foot was on the line <laughs> but you know it's the old days so it's a three yeah there's no replay the good old days when when <laughs> games were not bogged down by endless replay that's uh that's what i like no yeah he basically yeah he like sort of like jumps um and right before he lands it, he is able to get the ball off. Uh, it's kind of kind of like a you know jumps off of one foot and lands off the second. It, it's it's a very very difficult off balance three that he's able to uh, get with uh, Drexler right in his hip and it, it goes in. Uh, and the crowd yeah, gets a little excited. They're 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 pretty happy. <laughs> it was no, it was the peak of athleticism that move. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> I think he jumped about seven inches off the ground, and right. his shot was this crazy line drive. Right. That had no business going in and went no, in. Absolutely not. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was crazy. And then they went yeah. into overtime, um, and I think they were down two in overtime, and not not some incredible comeback like at the end of regulation. But Kevin Gamble drilled a shot at the buzzer to send it into double overtime. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's um, like Bird basically misses. Uh, two straight threes that would have given Boston the lead, including one where he was wide open. He got his feet set. Uh, then uh, the Blazers were up to about 30 seconds left. Drexler missed a running hook, but then uh, Buck Williams got a offensive rebound, was fouled, but then he missed both free throws. And uh, 
when Bagley drives in and gets a uh, uh, a pass to Gamble, who gets a about an 18 foot uh, jumper, and it, it, it swishes the time expires. It is definitely a shot that would have been a th- would have he would have of course been behind the line and gone for three today. It's it just you know you get so used to that that it's almost funny to see somebody not spot up for the uh, corner three, but uh, was able to to get the tie. Another dramatic shot, obviously another big crowd reaction. Oh, he lived off that shot. He, yeah, he, he made an NBA living off of the 16 foot pull up. Sure. Um, and, and there were a handful of guys that kind of had that specialty at the time. He didn't really have much else going, but that shot was money. Mm-hmm. Um, he drilled it regularly. And I even remember when he took it at the time, I felt pretty good that we were going to a second overtime. I was like, sure. oh, okay, this is yeah. a pretty good shot. Yeah. 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 It, oh, yeah. It was. It was a. It was a good play. It was a good drive by Bailey. It, it was. It was pretty much right on the money. So, yeah. Yeah. Bird was. Um, I mean, I like forcing it because he was. Uh, he. He definitely. Um, he had, I think he had forty three at the end of the fourth, and then you know only six points in two overtimes. So he was effective in other ways, but uh, definitely his, his shot kind of left him uh, during the overtimes. I don't believe you, but okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember Bird ever missing. So sure. Sure. Uh, yeah. One one thing I'll say that was noticeable about Bird here is that uh, you know I mean he is obviously so good at so many things you know just an incredible passer uh, you know incredible basically all, all the aspects of the game uh, incredible shooter but his ability to get off shots in tight spaces was really you know on note here and, I, and I'm sure it was a skill that served him well as you know he dealt with his back issues this is the athleticism never his you know primary uh, skill you know uh, declined even more but yeah he he really was able to just you know just get it in those very very tight windows that and it's something you know not just him a lot of great players obviously have that ability as well and that's that's an important part of you know being an incredible shot maker but it, it really stands out in this game well i think that's a good note to speak to how overrated athleticism can be sometimes um whether it's bird in the 80s or dirk Nowitzki recently um or even someone like steve nash like like the ability to do things on the court shoot with skill pass have vision make good decisions, use your body. Now, one of the techniques you see Kyle Lowry does it really well in Toronto is this put your guy in jail, just get somebody on your back and kind of use your hips and your space. Uh, All of that stuff can give you a a toolkit to attack that doesn't require, you don't have to jump over people constantly and and dunk on a whole team to be effective. And I think Mm -hmm. with Bird, he was so skilled in those areas, he was able to maintain a pretty strong offensive impact at the end of his career the athleticism sort of killed his defense. He could rebound um, because he stayed near the hoop, but his just his movement and his rotations were slow. And those are the things that suffer. But you can still be a phenomenal offensive basketball player even today without being a spectacular athlete. Sure, sure. Yeah. And just having, you know, that that vision that it sometimes that the difference, the distinction between athleticism and skill. Full. There's all kinds of different ways to play and be successful, and obviously, different players have found, you know, with higher levels of of athleticism and lower levels of athleticism, have found success just through, you know, intelligence and and uh, you know, and and, and through vision and, and know how and all that good stuff. So, um, so getting into the uh, the second overtime. Not quite as dramatic, although it, it does get you know, pretty exciting there toward the end. Do, do, do you recall the uh, the last you know, possessions of this game? No, no, okay. I, I do not. Did something right. weird happen? It gets a little weird because it, it looks like Bur- It looks like the Celtics are um, 
you know, about to take it, they, um, you know, Bert has a couple of, uh, of highlight plays. He has a starts a shot, but then, uh, sees Bagley cutting and dumps the ball down to him for a layup. Um, and then later on, uh, Bird's final mate gives Boston a six point lead with about two minutes left. And, and they, they keep that lead, you know, pretty much through, uh, you know, a six to eight point lead for until about 40 seconds left. Um, there's a lot of free throw trading for a bit. Uh, Bird steals a Mark Bryan offensive rebound to, to help them. But uh, then um, Drexler is able to uh, get uh, off of a 3-3. He gets a quick drive and uh, feeds it to Williams quickly for a 2. Uh, then Bird has an awesome outlet pass from the baseline, basically under the basket, to a wide-open Rick Fox who had just gotten into the game who gets a wide-open dunk. Uh, was that to, on a make? Uh, that was on a make, yes. Yeah, he, he was... Um... He was one of the better players ever at taking the ball out of the net and just knowing where, knowing what outlet was available. So he's catching and turning and throwing these passes instantly. Right. Um, yeah, just incredible. Yeah. And then uh, and then the Blazers respond. Uh, Danny Ainge immediately hits a, a three-pointer over Pickney to cut it to three. Uh, then Fox gets a free throw to put it back to four. Uh, Drexler is able gets a good pass to a, another blazer, blazer. I couldn't make out who it was on a jumper to cut it to two. And then Drexler at that point fouls out uh, on Boston's possession to uh, and then gets a standing ovation from the Boston crowd. And he had a great game uh, as well. He had 41 points on 60 true shooting, eight rebounds, 11 assists. You know, and contributed a lot as well. Uh, had some. Had some pretty ambitious three pointers, some some pretty uh, far distance ones for especially for the time there. So, um, and then at that point, there's a couple of free throws which make it uh, go back to a four point lead from Gamble. Uh, then Danny Ainge has this weird play where he gets stuck in a corner. He dribbles out of it and then goes back to the three point line, draws a foul, which is only two shots at that point. The rule hadn't changed yet, so uh, he hits the first, but then misses the second. And at that point, it's basically over. Picnic gets a free throw. And uh, Portland tries to get a a Ainge three, but they're down by four at that point, and it misses, and and that's that's it. So it, it was it got a little bit exciting toward the end. Uh, some interesting stuff, you know, going on. They're not obviously not as dramatic as the end of the fourth and end of the first overtime. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a fun. I was re- replaying that in my head as you uh, ran that down. Um, no, that was it was an incredible game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, so. One thing I want to talk about is uh, some of the stuff that you've uh, that you were working on that you are working on uh, that you might be working on in the future. And uh, and first, we, we've talked about it on the show. I think most people on the show are probably familiar with the series. But uh, for those who aren't, you did a series uh, looking at the, uh, the the 40 greatest uh, NBA players in uh, history. Uh, and, and I think it's just an incredible blend of. Um, of, of scouting, of uh, you know, taking analytics and 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 making it understandable and and, and understanding the context and uh, and also you know looking back at history and understanding historical context. It's you know it's kind of a mix of you know biographical observations of skills, you know, all the looking at you know uh, number impact, all all great stuff that you did. Uh, can you tell people just a little bit about uh, the series and the work that you put into it? Yeah, I mean, thanks for the those words. It was very kind. When I'm feeling down, I know who to call now uh, <laughs> to, to get a pick me up. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was many years in the making. Um, it, I started really getting into historical stuff and historical statistics almost a decade ago, 
uh, and over on Real GM, they would run these historical projects. I think that's really what um, sort of burst the dam open for me. Uh, I'd kind of had some interest on my own. Uh, but in these projects, you go all the way back in time. Um, so the first one I was exposed to looked at every NBA season retroactively all the way back to like the beginning of the shot clock. And we'd go through each season, we'd rank the players, we'd read articles, we'd look at trends, we'd look at the stuff that happened. Uh, and that was, that was 2010. Uh, and then so over the years, I just worked on a lot of historical stuff and I had kind of thought or had an inclination to do something like this at some point and the time was right and I did not realize what I got myself into <laughs> so <laughs> it was a it was a long time to to put together it was like a year-long project um so yeah and I, I I really wanted to use video and more context um and I think that's what you know kind of got the snowball rolling down the hill if you will I just I I started watching some old YouTube games and grabbing clips and everything went from there. Yeah. I, I mean, even just going through the profiles and just watching the videos is fun. And usually they're just, you know, shorter clips that just kind of give context to the play and, and Ben kind of demonstrates, you know, his point using the uh, clip and, you know, and he's watched, you know, um, hundreds of clips for all of these guys and just, you know, and really just digs deep into, you know, what made the player special, their skills, their, you know, the, their flaws, how it kind of evolved over their career. And, you know, just like I said, it, it, it's some really great stuff. I mean, this project, I mean, you know, Ranking players is always can always be a little bit problematic, um, but I think that you know the best attempts at this are really just trying to you know get a deeper understanding of you know of the game overall and of what you know of what can be valuable and right. and more just about what was good about these players and what and also the difference between of course you know kind of the reputation versus the reality of it and. Um, you know, and for a lot of these players, you know, particularly the pre-90s players, that's so useful because these guys haven't been examined in that way, you know, in a long time, if ever. Right, right, right. And I, and I think um, I think the sort of further back you go and the less data you had at the time that shaped the narrative, the more opportunity you have for a narrative change. Uh, that was certainly what happened with me over the years with with Wilt. I was a growing up, I, I, you know, I, I liked numbers and I had little encyclopedias with all the history and the record books and things like that. And I was like, wow, this guy averaged 50.4 points per game in a season. Actually, 50.36. I, I lost a trivia game once because you weren't allowed to go over. And I, uh, I confidently stamped down 50.4. And uh, yeah, they took it out to two decimals. So 50.36 points per game in a season and uh, all these other records he had. But if you, if you, the further back in time you go in the game, right, all of those narratives back then were shaped by, and they didn't know what they didn't have any concept of efficiency. Uh, they didn't have any concept of really team level metrics. They had a very basic box score. Uh, if you can find old box scores from the fifties and sixties, they would have your free throws made, your free throws attempted, and then your field goals. They didn't even. They were like, ah, the number of field goals you attempt doesn't even matter. <laughs> I know that's incredible. That <laughs> just yeah, completely obviously different mindset of uh, uh, than than we have today. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The emphasis of the free throws over the uh, field goals is uh, is kind of hilarious in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, I think over the years I I had collected more and more information about the past. Uh, one of the big projects I did 
um, which is up on basketball reference. Neil Payne ended up uh, extending it and putting it up on basketball references. Team uh, efficiency ratings before 1974. Uh, so that kind of opened your eyes to start seeing things like, well, wait a second, the Celtics offense wasn't really good, but their defense was incredible. Or like, wait a second, Wilt scored 50 points a game, but the team's offense was like the same the year before. It didn't really seem to move the needle or budge anything. Um, so starting to collect this information over time, which still I think is kind of in the shadows even today on the internet uh, and trying to bring that out into one accessible place. That was, that was really one of the goals I had in mind. Are there any players that you really changed your thinking on significantly after you, you know, kind of did the research and, and work, you know, uh, in this series? Well, I, I think if you go back uh, to the beginning where I started, um, uh, certainly Reggie Miller is someone who's just slowly moved up more and more the more I've studied him over the years. Um, even even in that vein, like someone like Patrick Ewing, who I think his 90s reputation, you know, at that time he's kind of, uh, he's not in the Olajuwon Robinson group of centers. He's not on Jordan's level. Um, he's in a big market, but kind of chastised for a lot of failures. And he just wasn't a guy that I had thought about as, like, you know, maybe you think of him as like a top 50 guy he made the all NBA at 50 team, but he certainly moved up over the years uh, to me, both because of the importance of defense and the ability of, uh, you know, his defense itself, but also, you know, his offensive game peaked kind of before the Knicks did. Um, and so that happens a lot of times guys get unrecognized or they, they get a narrative spun about them that is a little unfair if your peak or your skill set kind of peaks when the team isn't at its peak. Mm -hmm. um, so those are two guys from the 90s. I think in general, the the big winners over the years, and I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, guys who are hurt by this so-called winning bias, this idea that when you win, what our mind likes to do is go back and give a tremendous amount of credit to the winning players on the winning team. We kind of throw away, uh, I use this idea of like an antiseptic wash or something. We wipe clean all of the mistakes someone did and we hold on to the great place. We do the exact opposite for a losing team. So if you have a guy like Akeem Olajuwon or Kevin Garnett, who was saddled in these uh, mediocre situations at best, uh, the, the franchises and the management um, you know, weren't great or consistent and the teammates weren't fantastic over the years, and you just get these stretches in their prime where they play, looking back on some of the rosters is a little cringeworthy. Uh, those guys tend to get left behind. So I think Hakeem and Garnett uh, in that sense. And then the other one is the, the scorers, like Wilt. Um, even Elgin Baylor at the time, uh, Moses Malone, um, Bill Russell, I used to be lower on because of this emphasis on scoring. And I think, in fact, uh, when you look at how valuable defense can actually be, when you look at how relatively valuable passing or shot creation can be, uh, it kind of starts to change uh, players who rely heavily on scoring, even if they're moderately efficient, right? The, the first movement was like the anti-Allen Iverson movement. Well, efficiency matters, so he can't be that great. Uh, it's more complicated than that. But then the, the sort of uh, after effect of that was like, hmm, okay, well, if you're a big scorer and you're still efficient, then you must be fantastic. Ergo, Adrian Dantley is the GOAT. Sure. <laughs> uh, so what, uh, 
was there a ranking that you felt like you uh, got the uh, most uh, feedback or, uh, or criticism from? And, uh, and was it Kobe Bryant? <laughs> um, man, I was nervous about Kobe because he, he can actually, first of all, watching him can be spectacularly fun. Um, and then dissecting his game really should be like exciting and instructional in different ways. Uh, but of course, the the conversation is super polarizing. I, I don't think it was. I don't think I got the most feedback. Um, I was probably Jordan and LeBron just because okay. of where those guys stand. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, with Kobe, you have the ranking issue. But to me, the the actual positions were secondary to the to the analytical takeaways about each guy's game. Right. Exactly. Yeah. For the record, Kobe's 14th, which I think is is valid, and, and it's a great uh, it's a great read as they all are. Yeah, I think the ones that surprised me a little bit the most, um, I, I, you Drexler's at 39, which is just uh, I kind of considered him more in the the realm of the uh, top 30. Although I, you obviously make really good arguments for Drexler, and, and you're I think the your profile Reggie Miller was probably my favorite one, or, or kind of made me think the most in terms of you know, the way that his offensive skills, obviously in terms of his shooting, but also in terms of, you know, um, his movement being able to um, kind of shift the defense to create attempts for other players. Like that, that was a concept that I hadn't thought quite as much about you. I think traditionally the skills, you know, he didn't have the, the kind of, you know, taking your man off the dribble kind of skills that we associate with a lot of the great shooting guards and his, you know, box score numbers are very good, but not necessarily, you know, elite type things. But I I thought you made a really interesting case about how, you know, the way that he played actually creates, you know, an incredible amount of value, maybe even more than, you know, some of the traditional shooting guards that we kind of think of, you know, with uh, the, you know, off the dribble type skills. Well, I think the great irony is, we have this almost like this uh, street ball rubric where if you're really good at one-on-one um, or, you know, you have a, a skill set that allows you to, to take your man off the dribble or in the pinch post or something like that, that we give you a tremendous amount of credit. Um, I, I think of there was a video going around recently, uh, the Team USA camps that they're having right now, and everyone was playing the one-on-one throw-in games. And it's like they throw the ball into a guy in wherever he is inside the arc, and he takes four, five, six, seven seconds to make his move. And if he hits a jumper, he he wins and stays in. And it's like uh, that's very limiting. That's a tremendous skill. But if you had a team of those guys, you'd kind of be stuck. And in real life, it's really not very effective to hold the ball and dribble and hold the ball and dribble and up fake and hold the ball. And so we, when growing up, Miller was penalized to me because he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. which I think is backwards. He was penalized because he made quick decisions and he could come off screens and be effective off the ball. And and to something that you said, he would even pull players out of the paint or draw extra defensive attention. And you pair a guy like that with a good passing point guard. So when Mark Jackson got there, it's like, okay, now you have to be careful because when you run your floppy pin downs and he comes off those screens, um, don't leave the screeners or they're going to get layups. And Antonio and Dale Davis had a, you know, half a living getting a bunch of dunks like that. And so th- there's more with Reggie, right? And I go into it in the piece, his playoff performance is um, unnaturally improved compared to his regular season. His team's offenses were always very good. He he just stacks up really well. And his scoring volume and efficiency are like, they're, they're almost off the charts. 
they, they every public and private scoring evaluation metric I've ever seen uh, treats him as one of the better scorers ever. And that was not the reputation he had at the time. He grew up in this Jordan era. Drexler was another perfect example. And if you weren't a shooting guard who averaged five or six rebounds a game, five or six assists a game, then here, wait for it. You, you were demonized as one dimensional. <laughs> Right, that was what he was labeled sure. growing up, one-dimensional. Like, yeah, and uh, and Bill, and if you reread Bill Simmons' entry on him, which I did after I after I published the Miller profile, I went back and read it. I mean, he just, or, or I think right before I, because I have a footnote about it, he just rails on him as this one-dimensional, like eighteen three and three player, as if all players who average you know twenty-three and three or something in the regular season are the same. So. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the playoff, uh, you know, success that he had, the unnatural playoff success that he had, because I, you like without actually really deeply examining the case, you could think of Reggie as a guy who had like, you know, three or four big playoff moments that you know mostly came against the Knicks or high profile teams. So they're kind of outsized in public imagination. So you could almost imagine him being overrated because of that, you know, um, you know, like a right. Robert Rory type thing or whatever, you know, like a like a, a thing, but yeah, it actually, the, the funny thing is that, you know, he really stands out um, in terms of, you know, being one of the few players who really, you know, step it up in the playoffs consistently. And, you know, we where you have enough uh, evidence to show that, yeah, he was actually was a player. who was even more effective in, or didn't lose his effectiveness in the playoffs. Like many players do. Well, I think the other thing that was kind of lost at the time, speaking of, you know, the dark ages of analytics or data the, the Knicks teams in 93 and 94 were two of the greatest defensive teams ever. And uh, most guys, including Michael Jordan, when they went up against them, their numbers go down. You know, scoring gets harder because they're in a harder scoring environment. You get fouled on every play. <laughs> so what's interesting about Miller is he has all these moments against great defenses. And there's something that seems to be uh, sort of impregnable about his attack. And, and Theoretically, I think it's because he uses screen so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see this even today with Steph Curry, where you'll see guy there was there was some uh, Matt Moore had some thread, I think, today or yesterday talking about how Curry still gets so many open catch and shoot opportunities. Well, you use screens well and you kind of have to pick your poison. If you, you can't guard everybody 30 feet away from the hoop when they have two giants, you know, setting semi moving screens for him all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I and I use the term semi loosely there. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you've also been doing some work recently, uh, sort of looking at uh, passer rating, kind of looking at some of like the flaws and how we evaluate passers, or some of like the traditional thinking, and trying to you know um, maybe reexamine it a little bit, and you know f- maybe addressing some of the flaws in how we evaluated passers of the year. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, it started from a place of us not really doing much to evaluate passers in the first place, right? Um, I think really throughout history, there was this concept of the assist, and the assist was viewed as an acceptable proxy for all things passing, right? Um, But I think the first thing for me that started years ago was noticing the difference between guys who racked up assists and guys who created open shots for teammates. And so that was the first sort of path I went down. Um, and then more recently, I've, I've been you know, trying to uh, think about path, passing more holistically, right? I, th- I think at some point I got to have like a pa- uh, passing manifesto 
that I publish or something. Um, it, but it, think about it. It's, it's, we tend to uh, sort of lionize guys who make fancy passes or behind-the-back passes or no-look or head-turning passes, and, and those are plenty valuable. But passing is this area of the game that not only is super impactful, but think about all the things that go into passing. I've been, I've been trying to make a list, right? It's like you can have on-ball passing, which is when you're dribbling and sort of in control of the possession. And then let's say you drive down the lane. Well, you got your drive and kick pass, right? You got your drive and lay down pass. Kobe was fantastic at that, FYI. Um, you, you've got skip passes. LeBron, probably the best skip passer I've ever seen. You got pick and roll pocket passes, right? Um, Chris Paul does that really well. Nash was probably the king of that. Then you've got this like uh, pick and roll lob pass. You've got, how about outlet passing? We are talking about bird earlier, right? Um, magic in transition. Which side do you go to? How long do you wait? And all of those things. And then there's off ball, like extra passing and, you know, passing on the run in the lane. So all of these kinds of reads add up and you look at each one of those sort of dimensions of passing and you say, okay, how, how efficient are you? Are you making elite high leverage finds that other people can't find? Are you making good finds that some people could find but are moving the ball to the right area to, to, to make the defense more vulnerable? And then how many turnovers? How many times do you miss? How many times do you take chances you shouldn't take? You wrap that whole thing up and you get passing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Sim- simple uh, enough. Right. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I think the thing that has kept it from being studied more is that there there's so much that goes into it. There's so much in that goes to evaluating a passer. It's easy to look at assists and say, hey, he has more assists. To be the best passer, it probably means to add the most value across a generic circumstance mm-hmm. via your passing. Right. I, I think that would be a fair kind of high level definition. Sure. But I don't think we have I don't think a lot of people are going to give me pushback about the things I just said. But if you think about it, we don't really have a definition within the community of like what makes someone a better passer. And, and historically, people just kind of gravitate toward the highlight level passers or assist to turnover is another one. Right. Sure. Sure. Still coming from assists, but someone decided, hmm, if we just look at turnovers in this ratio, we can also say, boy, you know, Chris Paul has a four to one assist to turnover ratio. Ergo, he must be the point god. <laughs> He's not too shabby. That, yeah. Oh, Chris Paul, Jason. Chris Paul was a guy I got a lot of feedback on. And okay. I think what, what people don't realize is I often get feedback from both sides, which okay. is a very weird experience. So you'll publish something and you'll get a group of people saying, how on earth can you have Chris Paul in the top 25? He's never even made it out of the whatever. Right. And he's injured all the time, blah, blah, blah. And then you'll have 20 minutes later, how on earth do you not have Chris Paul in the top 20? I mean, he's one of the greatest point guards. It's it's a riot. Yeah. It's pretty funny. That's good. Yeah, he is kind of a divisive point. Yeah, we didn't eat, we don't need to get into it, obviously, but the uh, the Isaiah Thomas versus Chris Paul thing, which is a, a, definitely a, a Twitter battle that I feel like has happens every summer, although I don't recall seeing it quite this summer. So maybe maybe we're past that one. I don't know. But um, yeah, well, I, I'm, you know, it, it's been an exciting series so far. Um, you know, and, and definitely I, I very much agree that it's something, a subject worth study. And you, uh, you've you been studying all these really interesting things. So I uh, I commend you for, uh, you know, for, for making the attempt. And, and I, at least one more thing I want to quickly talk about uh, is uh, is your book, uh, Thinking Basketball, which I uh, recently went on a trip to uh, Europe and, uh, and read as I was traveling. And uh, it, it, it's fantastic. I mean, it's just... Um, 
it's uh it's very thoughtful but very accessible it's it's a it's a excellent read it's a good compliment with your um with with uh your regular blog writing especially the uh, uh the the grace of all time series it's uh, it, it's really good stuff so um i don't know if you want to you want to plug the book at all beyond that but it's uh, it's really good stuff people should definitely check it out uh, no i appreciate that you, you can get it on amazon uh, and i think the only plug that i'll make is that I think in my mind, it's a companion reading to that Greatest Players of All Time series. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a sense, it's a prerequisite because it lays more theoretical foundational elements that I pick up on in the series. Um, and I think it also would help explain to folks who have different ranking philosophies why I chose to kind of have this, you know, slightly different but very structured approach to how I ended up ranking players um, in the series. So that's yeah. So, um, anything else before we go? Um, I am uh, planning on launching a podcast. I think that's worth announcing. Uh, I started up a Patreon for that, and you can uh, support me on, I think it's on my website. If you go to backpicks.com, you'll see a link there to my Patreon. The Patreon yeah. itself is Thinking Basketball. Yeah. We'll include uh, and- it in the show notes as well. So, for anyone who's looking for it. Cool, cool, cool. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, and the idea, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording today. The idea is that basically um, I have had free time challenges over the years with being able to create basketball content. Uh, It's my second job, if you will, my my nights and weekends work. Um, So the ability to have people come in and support and help me produce more content is sort of this driver for uh, a next chapter, which is a, a podcast. No idea what I'm going to talk about. I think I'm going to talk about basketball. <laughs> not, Probably not to, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, you know, we yeah. could start there. Okay. I don't know where it's going to meander into. Sure. Well, sometimes I sometimes wonder what we where we're going to meander into in this show. So it's uh, <laughs> I think it's common in the podcast world. And we a lot of times we delve into wrestling for whatever reason. So, uh, but uh, no need to do that today. But um, professional uh, wrestling or Olympic wrestling? Professional wrestling, of course. the The sport of kings. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh, I don't even I don't know where to go from there. We meandered. Yeah. We definitely we, meandered. Today. We meandered a little bit. But anyway. Um, Ben, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a pleasure, of course. Uh, uh, check out uh, check out Ben's uh, Grace of All Time series. Uh, check out his book. Uh, support him on Patreon if you dig what he does, which I, I bet you will. And uh, thanks for listening to us. Of course, you can find us at thestepbackatfansided.com. Uh, if you want to leave a rating and review on iTunes, that would be awesome. We're also on uh, Stitcher. We're on. Uh, we're, we're basically on every platform in which you listen to podcasts. So uh, if you want to rate and review us uh, someplace else besides iTunes, go ahead. We would love that. And uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon. <laughs>